Today, we are joined by Mohammed Qadhim, and wow, the stories that Mohammed shares just blew my mind. I was holding back, literally holding back tears as he shared about his experience of living in Boston during 9-11 and just moving, moving stories. And he, he shared stories of old Bedus who were in their late 80s in, in Saudi and just, oh, I, you just have to, it felt like story after story after story that were so incredible. And Muhammad has this incredible gift to extrapolate meaning from old cultural traditions and makes it relevant in ways that we can apply to our everyday life in real practical ways. I am sure that you are going to love this interview. So listen up. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast dialoguing with creatives and entrepreneurs to better understand who we are, the work that we do, and how we will shape and own the future. Today, we have Muhammad Akavim with us, and let's just jump straight into it. I am really grateful that you are here in my house today for this episode, and uh, we've already covered a lot of topics just in the the little bit of time we've been sipping our coffees. And I am, I don't know if excited is, excited is the right word, but I'm more so interested and intrigued in the trove of stories that you have from, from being a historian of in your own right in the region and your travels and everything. And, um, I just can't wait to pull pull stuff out of you and the insights that you have um, for us today. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me over. And I'm loving this corner of the house, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. It it's is, an honor, really. Yeah. So, so excited. Um, I thought we could start with just a little bit of your background, your origin story, your family, where you born, what sure. was it like growing up? Uh, so I was born in Dubai in the early 80s and... Um, uh, it it was a very different place. <laughs> I can tell you that just a little bit. <laughs> uh, and I uh, I grew up in Jumeirah uh, most of my life. And what was Jumeirah like in the early eighties? What in your memory? What was it like? Much emptier, a lot more beach. <laughs> That's what I remember. Uh, but uh, we were also uh, a lot closer, a lot more communal. We knew our neighbors. Mm. Uh, I even remember the time when we'd go to the neighborhood mosque and. Uh, you know, we'd see somebody who's not from the from from the neighborhood, and we'd invite him over to for coffee or you know for at least a, wow. a, yeah a drink or a meal or something at home. Uh, of course, those days <laughs> those days are, have passed. Yes, haven't they? <laughs> yes, definitely. Did you guys have walls around your hoshes at that point? Uh, well, we had walls. Yes, we had walls. Uh, I mean, we had ha- proper homes. So yeah, the walls were there. Uh, but in Dubai, in general, our walls aren't that high. If you've noticed, yeah, yeah, they're a little lower. Mm-hmm. And so you, you and your friends would just run along the beach and play and yeah, ride and your bikes. Was, was there electricity in the early eighties? Yes, yes, of okay. course. Yeah. Okay. I was, you <laughs> I, know, was, I was fortunate to be born in AC. <laughs> I mean, because you look at the pictures and you want, you have to wonder when you look at the pictures of the early eighties, you have to wonder what was there and what wasn't there. Yeah, we didn't have paved roads everywhere. Um, I mean, we had one in front of our house and there's a lot, a lot of empty land. So, mm. you know, it'd be normal to have like two or three houses and then suddenly there's this empty Mm, huge plot of land and then 
you go back and then you have a few more houses and you could get away with a lot of things because it was uh, very small yeah so we'd have uh atvs uh these uh oh man buggies yeah <laughs> so fun <laughs> so it's like a kid's dream exactly we could just ride around the neighborhood and no one would say anything because most of it was sound anyway yeah but that's changed that's changed yes it has changed but maybe for some ways for the better and some ways for the worse i agree yeah i agree so what was it what continue what was it like growing up so, uh, yeah, I was born here. Uh, Dubai was amazing uh, because it's always been diverse. It's not something new. And I think it's been the case since the 1850s. Yeah. Um, you know, we've always had people from different nationalities. So I grew up listening to many languages, mm. uh, which made me learn a lot. Um, you know, at least English, Arabic, uh, Hindi uh, was common, very common back then. So, uh, and I think it still is. A lot of people who are in the 30s can still speak mm. it and some younger as well. Um, and it was the language of trade before uh, Dubai Hindi became. Was. Right? Yep. Yeah, makes and, sense. And rupees was our, the currency we'd use until uh, the late sixties when we when we developed the um, the Dubai Qatar Rial. Hmm. And then after that, of course, we formed the union, and the dirham was introduced. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what was what was your childhood dream? I like to I like to. I think about my childhood dream and I realize in some ways I'm, I'm doing my childhood dream. So what was, what was your childhood dream when you were a kid? What did you like when I grow up, I'm going to be like that eight, nine, 10, 10 year old spot. So I come from a family of doctors. We were actually nominated in the Guinness World Book of Records. Really? <laughs> For the most doctors in, in one family. I'm talking about myself and my first cousins wow. uh, and my uncles and aunts. I think we we were the forty two number or something like that. I have I have seventy two first cousins. Just just <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather had I think five wives and wow about eighteen kids. Something something along those 72 lines. Seventy so. two first cousins. Yes. <laughs> How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one sister. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so you can see you can tell my dad got fed up with a big family. <laughs> so your dad came from a big family. He's like, nah, they got that all wrong. We're gonna have two. <laughs> yes. Your sister older, younger. My sister's younger. Younger, okay, uh, and she's got two little kids who are who drive me insane. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome! Wow, that's quite the change from seventy-two. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow, but yeah, that's uh, you know coming from from a family that's uh, that's pretty big in terms of cousins uh, was fun growing up in that environment. There's always a sense of belonging, and then being exposed to multiple cultures. My dad uh, grew up in India. Uh, he went to school and university there, so uh, and he, he speaks and writes the language as well. Wow. Uh, at that time, we didn't. I mean, my dad was growing up in the late forties, early fifties, mm. so schools were limited, and uh, you didn't really have that kind of higher education. So my dad had to. Uh, well, my grandfather would send uh, the kids to uh, to India because that's where his business was set up. He was doing some pearl trade, some other trade. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, being exposed to this multicultural, so, you know, you had dads who studied in India, we, you know, who could speak English as well. And, uh, growing up in Dubai along, aside these different nationalities, speaking Arabic, uh, speaking English, being exposed to, uh, different, Mm. different nationalities, not only in school, but also, um, you know, uh, when you go out to a restaurant or something, uh, the waiting staff, everyone, yeah. everyone's from everywhere. So it's a very multicultural environment that you're being raised in. Mm-hmm. And you pick up the, the cultural differences and you begin to form what maybe I can call uh, an emotional intelligence or cultural intelligence, mm. if you may. Yeah. And, and you begin to know how to interact with these different cultures. And I think that 
played a big role uh, in my life. And to answer your question, my dream growing up <laughs> was, um, of course, to be a doctor who could make an impact along different uh, different cultural realms, let's say. Interesting. Uh, and that was something for me, my dream. Um, so it wasn't just, I want to be a doctor like my, my family line, but they, there was like an, an amendment to it, which is to make an impact a- across cultures. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that was very, very much a, a conscious d- uh, thought. Is that for my I phone? I think that's your phone. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that's weird. I usually don't have it on. <laughs> it was reminding me. It was reminding Do you need to take a break? <laughs> that's all right. We can okay. do it in a bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It's like, wow, I've never heard the call for so loud in my house before. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> oh, you can see I need a reminder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yes, growing up along those different cultures uh, definitely created an impact. I think for me at least, and I, I'm pretty sure for others as well. Uh, mm. In general, when I when I go any to any Arab country outside of Dubai, and I uh, I interact with people, and they immediately tell me, "You you must be from Dubai." And I don't think it's my accent per se, because my accent is, uh, let's say, we call it the white accent or Lahja mm. uh, al Basically, it's a very it's a diluted general city accent of any it could be of any yeah Khaliji city yeah um but uh i think they get it because of the 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 way i understand their perspective and the way i interact with them they immediately associate me with dubai so it's like yes you you seem like you're exposed so you must be from dubai <laughs> really it's fascinating so that multiculturalism that you grew up with that kind of instilled a, a sense of understanding of other cultures within you from a young age I think it's fair to say so. Yes, uh, at least that in, that intelligence part of it, like you know how to interact, you know what would offend. Like I, from a young age, I'd know that you know the Hindus don't eat beef, for example. Mm. So when when you interact with with a Hindu, you need to be sensitive mindful around and that. Sensitive around what caused? I think there's I think there's a, a difference between being kind of that culturally aware, but then also having a, an empathy for different cultures, which I think probably other people see it's not just that oh yeah I know that they don't eat beef but whatever but there's in some ways it's there's a emotional empathy that and compassion that would cause you as a doctor to say I want to be able to impact other cultures through my gifting where did that come from Well I'm not a doctor <laughs> but yes if I were if you were <laughs> um yeah you know it's um I think it's part of Dubai. Uh, I, I really don't have an answer for it, but I, I would assume it's a part of Dubai. Uh, you know, growing up knowing that, you know, you have uh, all this religious diversity around you mm. and there's acceptance and tolerance. Uh, at a time when the region was pretty strict and even at a time when, uh, you know, uh, the the region, the, the Dubai's city politics was also considered aligned very much uh, religiously mm. uh, with, with the strict movements in the region, but still there was this tolerance uh because it's a trading port that that you know has survived for uh over a hundred years this way and uh, and i think i think that played an important role in my um in shaping my view towards uh, mm. or to instill this empathy maybe that's a yeah. better way to say do you feel like it maybe also your parents because your dad he spent a lot of time in india studying mm-hmm. it's that possible. Had an impact as well I'm sure. I'm sure it has an impact. Uh, being exposed and and you know, being able to uh, convey or relay that 
that exposure mm. um, through interaction, through daily life. I think, yes, it does play a role. So from, so f- how did you move from wanting to become a doctor that impacts cross-culturally to where you are today as the founder of Tamashi and someone who brings tours cross-culturally? And uh, what was kind of that, that journey to becoming an entrepreneur, small business owner from wanting to be a doctor originally? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a physics teacher, uh, a Syrian guy uh, by the name of Mr. Nadim, and I won't forget him. Uh, and I'm still in touch with him. Really? Uh, he's, uh, he's a wonderful guy. He lives in Canada now. He's in Toronto. Uh, and he owns a school, I believe. But um, uh, he was a wonderful physics teacher and he taught with uh, with passion. Mm. Uh, and I remember this was around maybe uh, towards the later years of high school, uh, either grade 11 or 12, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, he uh, he made me uh, love physics, uh, and which I never thought I would be, uh, I would lean towards. I was always more, uh, you know, biology oriented because mm-hmm. I had in my mind, you know, medicine, et cetera. But in, in, uh, when, I, when I began to develop this love for physics, thanks to this teacher, I, uh, I was looking for something that combines the two, so physics and, and biology. Uh, and that's where I came across biomedical engineering. At that time, Boston University had, a, had an office here in Dubai. I don't think they have one anymore. But uh, that, was, uh, you know, that was when I started looking into how I can get into that program. Uh, applied to the university and next thing you know I was studying biomedical engineering in Boston <laughs> in Boston yes so when did you move to Boston uh, I moved to Boston in 2000 uh, I was 17 at the time wow and uh, it, I had been there uh, at least two or three times before because uh, I had a cousin studying there and my mom and dad and I would go in the in the summer uh, so I, I was familiar with the city uh, you know with the subway system mm-hmm. the T as they call it uh, so I felt comfortable there and yeah, that was it. <laughs> what was one of the most impactful memories from your time there in Boston in university? Uh, there's so many. <laughs> Top one, one, two or three. There's so many. Um, well, maybe uh, one that maybe drastically kind of shifted maybe a, a, a paradigm or a viewpoint. I think, uh, I'll, I'll explain one memory that I found very, I was very grateful for. Uh, at a time when it was it was a tricky time, so I was there during September the September 11th mm. attacks. Uh, wow! So it I, I still remember I was going to a differential equations class, which is a very a form of math. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm a math minor. Oh, excellent! I, I don't know if the audience knows what differential <laughs> equations are, but I've grown to love and hate them. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> awesome. Yes, um, honestly, I loved it at the time. Mm. <laughs> But if you ask me now, yeah, I'd, no, I'd, now that's I'd what I said. Hey, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember I was going into, uh, I was going into, I was listening. Uh, I, I, uh, I had a, I had just got in my car and I was listening to um, the radio on the way to to university, and I heard about the first plane, mm. uh, and that was it. We we just heard about the first plane, and I went into the class and I came out, and then I heard about the second. So, of course. Uh, you know the natural reaction was a little uh, scary, and uh, we. I just drove home, and I I wait. I was waiting for my evening class, so there was a morning class and an evening class, which was an organic chemistry class. Mm. I, I won't forget this day. Um, and as I went home, uh, I saw a few missed calls from the embassy, so I called them back, and they told us, you know, uh, listen, we've asked all UAE students that are on scholarship to to remain in their homes uh, because we don't know what the situation is like. And what's going to happen? And uh, we may charter a plane to get you guys all out. 
Uh, so Did you, you have any idea why they were saying that at this point? Uh, yeah, at that time, of course, it was out that you know uh, okay. all the, all the you know mm-hmm. uh, accusations of who had done it, etc. So uh, and all the reactions that were being spread up across the country. So it was uh, so in the evening, I had a class, uh, a late class. I think it was around six p.m., uh, which was. Uh, which was uh, an organic chemistry class. Mm. Uh, it was run by a wonderful professor, a Jewish guy. Um, and uh, after the class was done, around 8 p.m., uh, he, he's like, before I let you guys all go, he, he said, listen, uh, what's happened today is tragic. And it's not somebody anyone would wish for anyone. Uh, and I think we're all here together in this. Mm. And he said, I want you guys to know that some of my closest, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm saying this, <laughs> uh, but some of my closest, uh, some of my closest students are Kuwaitis, Emiratis, wow. Saudis that I've worked with them for wow. many, many years. And, and they're wonderful people and they're, they don't believe in these things. And if you have a friend in the class who's sitting next to you or who's, who's with you, uh, show them your support. And this is the American way, you know, mm. go to them and tell them if anybody messes with you, we're here the same way they're here, uh, you know, uh, standing with you and in this Absolutely. difficult time. So uh, for me, that memory was a beautiful memory and I don't think I can ever forget it. Uh, wow, I, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the only one I've had so many similar memories, but this one I was very grateful for because I think it, it, uh, it was what pushed me to tell the embassy, nope, I'm staying. Uh, a lot of students went back and I said, no, I'm staying and continuing. And I did. It was my second year. What yeah. were what was some of your emotions, you know, when you're at home and you got that phone call from the embassy, what were you feeling? Uh, I don't know. Because I, I, uh, I felt a sense of belonging to some extent. Uh, it was a very welcoming place. The Northeast in general is a very welcoming yeah, place. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was, uh, it was confusing. I think the, the right word is confusing because you, you felt, uh, you felt, uh, sympathy and empathy for, for what had happened. And you felt bad also because it, it's relevant to a group of people mm. that, that you relate to mm. in terms of religion and culture and, and language. Uh, and yeah. So was there a sense of anxiety or fear of like uncertainty of like what's going to happen? Or did you feel relatively safe yeah, before that class? Yes, there was, but not too, I think because I was relatively young uh, yeah. at 18, I think I felt, uh, <laughs> I think I, that part of me was still not uh, well, ignorant. Yeah. If it, if it happened now, I'd be definitely more scared. <laughs> <laughs> the world has changed a lot though in 17 years. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, after that, I must say, I... Um, I was there for another seven years and mm. um, I, I didn't face any issue. I, I mean, nothing that I can tell you is worth mentioning except for like one random, you know, uh, Haitian taxi driver who, who yelled at me, but <laughs> I said, go back to Afghanistan. <laughs> but I mean, that's normal, right? Uh, he was angry. <laughs> and then, and then uh, there was one situation at Logan, but they were so nice with me at uh, Logan Airport mm. in Boston. Um, I had just come back uh, uh, from a wedding in Pakistan and uh, I had a Pakistani visa and my passport. Yeah. So the immigration was easy. Uh, I passed through. I never went through special registration, which most Arab students would go through. I was always the one who, you know, he seems like the cool guy. We'll let him go. Mm-hmm. Um, so immigration, I passed through in a minute. But at customs, they stopped me. And then they saw the the Pakistani visa, and they kept me in the airport for about four and a half hours. Oh my! Uh, and it was the last flight out, so there were no taxis or anything. I had to call a friend to to pick me up. Uh, but they were very very nice. 
uh, throughout wow. the process. They were very, Amazing. very nice. But that was my only bad, uh, I want to say, experience there. So after after that university class, um, what was, do you know, remember the name of the professor? Uh, believe it or not, I don't remember his name. <laughs> Can you believe? <laughs> Actually, it makes I think it makes the story a little even more powerful that you don't know his name. Just the the impact that someone has in another person's life with their words, and that was probably a small moment in his life, um, but it had a profound impact on your life. Um, did any of the students in the class kind of come up to you or say anything, or what was kind of the emotional processing? directly during that moment and afterwards? Yeah, so this was my sophomore year, second year. So uh, I had already known, I mean, it was a large class. It was at least 80 students. Because, mm. uh, you know, it was the initial yeah. first two years are yeah. big classes. So, uh, but, you know, I knew at least 30 to 40 of them and they all did. They all came and gave me a tap. Uh, Muhammad, you know we're here. That's <laughs> awesome. I don't need to tell you anything. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, it felt really good. It felt really good. That's I'm telling you, that's what, that, that was the main reason I decided to continue. And I'm very happy I did. And so you continued for another seven years there in, in Boston. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was in Boston up to 2004. Uh, I spent then a year in the UK. Uh, and then I came back in 2005 to Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about an hour outside of uh, Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, uh, I was working and studying. So I was doing my master's and I was working in a hospital at the same time as a clinical engineer and then later as a project manager. What did you graduate with? Uh, I had a, uh, I have a bachelor's in biomedical engineering mm -hmm. and a master's in clinical engineering. Wow. So and are you using that currently in what you're doing today? If you, if, if you may say that the engineering background gave me a structural <laughs> thought process, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> so then how did you move from, from working in biomedical engineering? correct? Mm -hmm. To being an entrepreneur? What was the the process that mm -hmm. got you here? Uh, I moved back to Dubai in 2008. Um, uh, it, was a, it was a difficult move because uh, my boss really tried to keep me there when I was working in the hospital in Massachusetts. That's a good thing. It was really nice. Uh, and uh, you may know, um, at least my experience with uh, American people is that they're, they're very warm. Mm -hmm. And they, when they get close to you, they really do get close to you. Yes. Especially uh, in, in the Northeast, they have tight knit communities. We're kind of in the, on the West coast, it's more loose, but definitely up there in the Northeast, it's like, once you're in, like they won't let you out. Uh, my boss was an Italian American woman and she was a wonderful lady. And, uh, and she really tried. And I, I, uh, I won't forget because the day I, I, my last day at work, she was in tears. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, it made it even more difficult. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> but when I moved back, uh, I'm, when I moved back, it was just around the, the tip of the crisis, um, mm. the financial crisis. Yeah, 2007, and, 2008. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I was trying to find a job with the Dubai University Hospital. At that time, there was a, there was a Harvard University, uh, university hospital that they were building in the Dubai healthcare city. Uh, which was then put on hold. I'm not sure if it ever completed, but um, so I wanted to join that project. But uh, I remember uh, in the States, I was looking through Cleveland Clinic's uh, journals and I noticed that they were opening uh, one in Abu Dhabi. So I tried to find out which company is working on it and I immediately uh, joined it. And uh, at that time, they were looking for more people on the investment side rather than the, the clinical side because the hospital wasn't ready. Um, so I decided, okay, Let's explore this uh, financial part. <laughs> wow. So I did, uh, it was part of the requirements to, to work for Mubadala at the time, uh, which is the company that was developing uh, Cleveland Clinic and other healthcare projects. 
the requirement was to do the CFA level one, which is a, a certified financial analyst uh, course mm. or accreditation. There's level one, two, three. After you do the three levels and work for a few years in the industry, you get the you get the title. Uh, but I just did a level one, which was the requirement, uh, the level one exam, and I passed it in the first go, which was amazing. It was, it's like a mini bachelor's in finance, cool. which is very beneficial. So I yeah, worked It's probably helpful being an SME right now, huh? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It definitely <laughs> did help. It definitely did help. Uh, it, gets you, it gets you familiar with uh, you know, that world, the financial yeah. world, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, worked in Mubadal for a few years on the investment side, uh, analyzed different um, healthcare uh, opportunities. Then uh, I was given a project uh, to kind of mini project manage, uh, which was a spine surgery center, which then became my focus. Um, and after that, uh, once the project was handed to the operating team, uh, they weren't they were Koreans, uh, wonderful, wonderful doctors mm. and wonderful health, healthcare team. But they weren't familiar with the business side of of healthcare in the region. Mm. So they were struggling. And then again, the management of Mubadil asked me to manage the or you know be the general manager of the facility. And I got there, and then it reached a point. Mubadil was going through structural changes, etc., where um, I wasn't creating much of an impact. And for me, I think it's very important. I told you from the beginning, even as a child, you dream, are a millennial. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's well put. <laughs> yeah, um, I I, uh, I had to do something that I could see mm. the impact of, and I I felt I was wasting my time. So at that stage, I tried to find my way within the company to see if there's any other way I can make an impact. But um, but it seemed like there was too much bureaucracy at the time. I, I know they've they've gotten their stuff together now. Uh, so I decided the best thing to do is to quit. And at that time, I, I had two of my friends uh, who were also at the stage where they were getting fed up of what they were doing. One of uh, one of them was in Mubadala with me and one who's still with me in the uh, management of Tamashi, uh, Munira. Uh, she was, she had her design, uh, graphic design studio, but she was saying she wanted to do something more challenging, mm. more fun. So What year are we at at this point? So this was in 2012, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, end of 2012. So I, I made my plan to exit Mubadala um, by April. And uh, and Manila was on board and Ali at the time was on board as well. So all of us decided to, to leave. And then we put down three major goals that we want to achieve. And you can see that, you know, investment banking side coming yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> Or private equity, let me say. Um, the uh, so we put down three major goals we wanted to achieve through through whatever project we do, and at that time we had no idea what we we're doing. Um, but one point that we were all passionate about, Ali and I uh, both went to private schools, spent a lot of time outside. So when we moved back, there was this, you know, Arabic language culture uh, mm. disconnect mm. because we spent a lot of time outside, and um, and same thing happened with uh, with Munira. Uh, you know, she grew up in the States and then later moved to the region for university. So she did the opposite. <laughs> wow. Uh, and she's from Saudi. So so we all sat together. We all had this gap in culture, right? We were all passionate about mm. it, but there's uh, there's this gap that we wanted to bridge. So, uh, so we're like, okay, best thing to do is let's put down three goals that relate. So at that time we said we wanted to preserve something from our culture. We don't know what it was because we saw the culture changing so quickly. Uh, and there's not much active effort being done to keep it alive, uh, except on a very superficial level. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, oh, look at me, I'm eating traditional food or I ha I'm sitting on a traditional mat, but what was the context of that mat? What was the context of that food? What made that food happen? Huh. Nobody ever thought about or went into detail. So we felt that there was a need in, in that realm. So we said, okay, one 
is preserve a part of the culture or the identity. Second is represent this culture that you're preserving to the rest of the world. So repackage it in a way mm. that is relevant, relevant. To, a, to a larger audience. And then the, the, last, the last one we said was uh, leave a positive impact uh, on society no matter what you do. Mm. So these are three goals we put in place and then we started exploring. <laughs> Can I ask, I'm going to interrupt you at that point. Have you, you've probably heard the term third cultured kid. Mm -hmm. Would you call yourself a third culture kid? Because um, you just explained the gap of I'm, you're not an American. I mean, obviously you are an Arab, but by your own admission, you're saying, but I'm not. There's, there's a gap in my culture and your other two members, they both, they both felt that gap in their culture in some ways saying, you're asking the question in that first um, BHAG, that first uh, big goal that you have. Um of who who are we who's our heritage and what does that mean for today with is your second goal mm -hmm. um i don't know if the i think they should create another word for it because third culture kid is so uh, you know born in another country uh grew up with maybe uh you know first generation parents who've just moved yeah. from from another country so they're they feel that culture shock um, maybe there should be another term for these kind of people but like but no i don't think it was i don't think i can say i'm a third third culture kid uh, or was but uh, but definitely uh, something similar because yes like you mentioned there's that culture gap uh, that you're feeling and I don't know do you I think guess that primarily came from your education in the states or do you think that dates back to how you were raised as a child even with growing up multiculturally with all these other cultures around you and you saying as a child I want to make an impact in across cultures i think i think it's a combination of both uh, it must be um because you know it, at least i i moved to the states when i was 17 so a big part of uh of you know my personality was shaped over there but yeah uh, but i came with certain strong beliefs even at 17 mm -hmm. growing up in that uh multicultural environment but also coming from a conservative family uh a, a very open-minded conservative family if that makes sense mm. uh you know very true to the to the religion to the culture uh but at the same time very accepting yeah uh, and very exposed yeah um and clearly uh, and i think that that played a big role uh of course a combination of both so personality was really developed in the States, mm -hmm. uh, but came with strong foundations from here. So when when you and your, your team members are feeling that gap in that first goal, can you unpack like some practicals of what does that mean that you felt that there's this gap between who you are and kind of feeling lost and ungrounded in who you are and the culture that you came from and where you're at today? What were some of the things that you were looking at that you all identified with by saying there's a disconnect here. How can we bridge this? So at that time, we just wanted to make sure we understand our identity, uh, and I think that was uh, so that we wanted to do it with something related to us. And I think what we saw, at least on the in, in in what we see in front of us in the visual world or in the retail world at that time, there's very little creative things happening that was authentically from the region. So when we'd go outside, for example, to the malls, 
right? We'd we'd see uh, we'd see foreign brands, and I guess for somebody who grew up here all their lives, it would be a natural thing. Yes, of course, foreign brands because mm. we don't know how to make shoes, or we don't know how to make clothes, or we don't know how to make uh, you know. It's normal. Of course, there's going to be foreign brands, yeah, uh, franchises, etc. Even when it came to food, um, whereas. Uh, for us, it was always like, okay, we've we've lived abroad, so we've seen all of this, but where's us? Where's our identity? You know what I mean? Why mm. why don't we see something from here? Why don't mm. we see something? Uh, I mean, why can't it be the opposite? Where you are walking down a street in LA and you see a store that's originally from Dubai or from the region and that's selling uh, a traditional item? Uh, I mean, we've seen it with with uh, with. Uh, all kinds of cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, you go you go around, you eat Chinese food, you eat yeah. uh, Italian food, you eat American food. Why can't why can't you eat Khaliji food? And, you know, just as an example. Yes. Uh so we so this was what was I think bothering us mm-hmm. because we were searching for our identity and we didn't even have it in the in our surroundings <laughs> where where our interaction is even, even in your home in Dubai, in the Khalij, you're saying you couldn't find that representation of your own identity within your own homeland. Correct. How does that, how did that make you guys feel? I mean, we understood the the reasons for it and we just thought that uh, it would be so much nicer if there was beautiful things being presented from our region. And part of it also had to do with, with, you know, uh, media and the negative media towards Arabs and Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, that also played a role because you know it made us feel like why aren't they talking about all these beautiful things we have or why or even we see the newer generations like the ones who are be, who be younger than us mm. who may have uh, not uh, held on to uh, the essence of a certain culture or mm-hmm. trait or habit but rather just the the habit itself so uh, that's why I said I was talking about context there yeah uh, context is so important because context is what defines why we used to do certain things. Um, even basic things like wearing black or white, you know what I mean? Uh, there's so many factors that go into it that people don't, don't discuss on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, or even no, and the younger generation don't know at all. They're just wearing white because their dad wore white and their grandfather wore white. Uh, and probably it was never white before because it didn't make sense to wear white in the desert. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and you never, you could never keep it so white anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so a lot of things um, we wanted, we wanted answers for, and uh, we wanted to see why beautiful elements weren't being presented. And I'm very happy we did go down this route because honestly, I over the years, and I'm sure we'll touch upon that, as you know, I got exposed to beautiful things, beautiful things that we have, and. Uh, that that would have probably will be forgotten very very mm. soon. So nobody's doing anything to to write them down. So was it this question that you three posed? That that is that what started you on that journey of really becoming a historian of of your own culture of sorts? I don't know if I can call would you, myself. Would you a call yourself a historian? That's what I'm trying to say. Like of sorts. Would you call yourself a historian? I don't think I can call myself a historian. I can call myself somebody who's passionate about passionate culture. about culture. <laughs> is that what? Is that the thing that the the inciting incident that sparked that that curiosity about your own culture and your own like the Khalij and yes it was kind of like a Pandora's box kind of thing and as mm-hmm. soon as we started going into it one thing led to another which led to another which made us go even deeper and we're like wow 
There's so many beautiful things here that we didn't even expect. And I think people should know about it. And that's that's where we reached. Um, yeah, so definitely, definitely this, these goals. I mean, initially uh, when we were starting, it, it, we, we stopped at the sandal. We thought a lot of, about services and products, et cetera, but we stopped at the sandal, uh, which, which uh, Tamashi produces. And this sandal was... Um, was mainly uh, worn by the entire region, but people who had uh, the ability to purchase a leather sandal because mm. most people were barefoot. Mm. So um, for us, um, you know, it started with a sandal, but we said we, we can't just introduce a sandal. Our goals and our values are much bigger than just preserving a sandal. Yeah. Uh, and I can go into the details of sandal, but I think it'll be boring. <laughs> but basically what I'm trying to say is that we created collections for the sandal as to always keep it exciting and always preserve a different element of the Arabian Peninsula. So ever since, we've created a, a collection on camel leather tanning, how they used to do it. Leather tanning in the region, the dyes they used to use, the components they used to use, how was it done in the past, uh, were there centers of trade? We did full researches around them, even produced booklets. Um, and we, when we do product launches, we'll do the launch and then we'll introduce, uh, and then the colors will be inspired by, it's let's amazing. say, the concept of, of the- Your storytelling. And you're using a product to be kind of a gateway into probably forgot, near forgotten culture. And in, in probably a few decades, if someone doesn't gather those stories, they'll be lost forever. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm hoping we're, we can, I mean, we've noticed at least in the past uh, few years that we've been around, we've been around for about four and a half, um, that people are appreciating uh, these topics and after we cover them it goes they go and take it further and do other things with it which mm -hmm. is amazing uh, so uh, leather tanning was one of them you know um, we had we had some artists for example working on on leather uh, that that loved the idea of it and then decided you know what I want to pick this up and I want to I want to bring back leather uh, you know, leather art that we used to have, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, one of the topics we've covered as well is um, uh, uh, plants and trees of the Arabian Peninsula. Yep. And this was our, our, our current collection that's in the market. Uh, and, you know, we went and studied different plants and trees, inspired a collection from it and uh, introduced people to, for example, juniper. They, nobody knew that juniper existed in the peninsula. So, you know, we, we, we went and we're like, as there's juniper here and it's beautiful and they use it. I mean, uh, for scents, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we created designs out of it. Mm. Uh, people took it further also. Um, then our next collection that's coming out is about Al-Qat art. It's an art form that recently got recognized by UNESCO. Uh, and we're, we, we did a full collection around it. But of course, our philosophy is very different. It's not introducing the art as was, because if you imitate the past, you really lose its essence. So what we do is we can modernize. You, can you say that again? When you imitate the past, you lose its essence. Yeah, I mean, it looks it looks wrong. It looks cheap. Like if you, for example, if I, if I take a drawing that's old and mm -hmm. I try to re reproduce it in a modern way, uh, exactly as it is, mm. something will be off. I mean, I think my prime example would be Medina Jumeirah. Medina Jumeirah is, is an imitation of the past. Yeah. Uh, and it looks Disneylandish. Yeah. Right. It so you does. feel it. You don't yeah. feel authentic at all when you go there. So, um, as, as beautiful as it is. Um, but then again, you, you look at a Nassim, which is right next to uh, Medina mm -hmm. Jumeirah. Uh, it's totally modern, but it has elements of culture that are very vivid. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And yeah. you appreciate it. You're like, wow, this is totally from here. 
Now imagine all of Dubai was like in this scene. <laughs> it goes back to context, right? You've mm -hmm. you've taken you, if you try to put something in that old context in the new context, and you don't contextualize that form of art, then it feels out of place and out of context. It feels like you're trying too hard. Mm -hmm. But when you take elements of old and you combine it to make something new and present it within that new context, then it fits. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's exactly what we did. With our footwear, we manufactured it using modern manufacturing techniques. We had to change the dimensions, the way things are done. Um, the same with our with the art forms we're trying to preserve. We modernize it totally. It sometimes doesn't even look like the original art, but it's relevant to today. And then what we do is we create booklets mm. and we spread awareness of the original art and the people who are still involved in it through our events and through our uh, our product with booklets mm. and with and through our social media social media etc and uh, that brings me to my next point which is uh, Tamashi experiences which we 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 launched this year um and that's been amazing because we've been going to all these places to document so we've been posting it on our personal social media uh, accounts and people have been telling us listen guys you have to take us with you yeah uh so we I was I was looking through some of your stories uh last night even there's some, uh, I don't, I forgot the name of the, the town in Saudi, but these beautiful kind of like dark stone buildings and these mountains mm -hmm. and these other mountains with like, looks like forest on it. I was like, oh my gosh, that's here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, the stuff we have, I mean, uh, so many layers of history that date back to tens of thousands of years even. It's incredible. Um, I, I mean... It's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, people, it's not spoken about enough and for good reason. We've invested a lot in the new city mm -hmm. and the new uh, the new Dubai and the new, uh, let's say, Gulf in general. Yeah. So it makes a lot more sense to market that. Um, whereas there's a big, big element. And I think Dubai is on the, on, on the top of, of actually bringing this, I mean, Dubai, UAE in general. Uh, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah is also doing a lot of fun stuff in terms of archaeology. Mm. Uh, and and you know with Saruq al Hadid and the new the new uh, discoveries of uh, of lost cities um, from the Bronze Age or even dating back to the Stone Age, Mleha and Sharjah. Mm. I think there's now becoming an awareness, and I think that's beautiful, which gives us more content for yeah, beautiful collections. <laughs> absolutely, I love I love I was thinking about this um, last night and a couple of days uh, the past week uh, leading up to this conversation. I've been thinking about what is the importance of of historical sites or archaeology or understanding our origin. And what I love about what you're doing is obviously I think it's important, you know, if you find a historical site to preserve it and turn it into a museum, come see it, come like visit an old fort and and understand, you know, just a generation and a half ago, people were actually living here and this is the way of life. Um, but I was trying to reflect on my own life and say, well, how does that impact, how would that impact me today as a person? How is that relevant to how I'm living my life in, in a practical sense? Or is it just, oh yeah, I went to a cool museum. That's really awesome. And what I love about what you guys are doing is that you're ex extrapolating from that old culture and saying, this is how it's actually played out in our everyday life. And this is how it's still part of our culture that maybe we didn't even realize. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think you got it. Um, it's, it's a little difficult, but we, that's what we're trying to, it's what we're trying to do. We also try to uh, give context to things. Um, you know, 
certain things have become, and it's normal, part of developing and you become a big city. Mm -hmm. uh, certain norms disappear and others are uh, taken for uh, its face value, let's mm -hmm. say. Or you just do it because everyone else is doing it. And you don't really know why. So we try to show the whys. Mm. We try to show, look, that this comes from here. Or certain even phrases or that people would say, um, you know, artwork. Over the years, we've come to believe that the region has been so... Uh, black and white or has been so beige let's say that there was no art form no color mm. so we've been trying to show no there's been a lot of art form and a lot of creativity in this region especially when you go to the inlands because there was so much time mm. that people would get creative in expressing uh, through rock art through uh, you know you've, you'll find t tens of thousands of years old rock art wow uh, acceptance of different uh, of different things even you know we always say oh desert people you know we we, we don't accept others we're, we're always with ourselves but then you know you go to these archaeological sites and you see no actually there was a trade route here oh there's a Greek deity we found in the middle of the desert in Sharjah wait a second if we weren't accepting of other cultures how did this greek deity get here wow <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah so and and i i recommend you visit the sharjah archaeological museum if you haven't already it's fascinating awesome i'll put that in the the show notes for location for people um so what do you have any stories of you know from your tamashi experiences whether people coming with you or just your own experiences um something that happened that maybe just really opened your eyes to life as it was, you know, years, you know, min min zaman, kan min zaman. Yeah, I, I'll tell you the same story I just told you in the yeah, yeah. in the kitchen. <laughs> um, I think that was one of the nice ones. Uh, there's a lot more. Um, so recently, I uh, uh, recently we took a trip of twenty people. But before that, I want to give some context, if you don't mind, please. Um, so before before uh, we create our Tamashi experiences that, where we take people with us on the trip, we of course uh, travel ourselves for documentation purposes or creating a collection, etc. So I had traveled to um, certain areas in the south of Saudi, very close to the border of Yemen uh, earlier this year. And uh, I met this guy on Instagram. And uh, I told him, listen, I want to come to your area because I love what you guys wear. Uh, you, they wear sarongs, flower crowns, the men, and uh, and daggers. So uh, pretty mean looking with a flower crown. It's <laughs> amazing. Look, guys, look, go check out his Instagram right now as you're listening to this because the images are just mind blowing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, and the area, of course, has green. It gets a little bit of rain. Uh, and so... Uh, I, he said, there's no hotels here. So the only way you can, you can come is if you stay with me. And, you know, it's very difficult for these guys look at you as a guest. So they'll, they'll give everything they have. And I know their financial status mm -hmm. isn't the best. So, uh, so I told them, listen, I, I will gladly come, but if you accept, uh, you know, an, an amount in return. Anyway, we had our mm. uh, little argument as Arabs. We of always course. have to <laughs> preserve your honor, yeah. safe face. Uh, of course, he didn't accept, but um, but later I found a way. You sneaked some money <laughs> in. Yeah, yeah, I found a way. Uh, so he he invited me over to his uh, to his house. Um, I stayed with them for about a week, a uh, little bit more, a little bit less than a week. I think it was five or six days. And uh, and the day I arrived, there was. Um, there was a, a ceremony to put the new sheikh of the tribe in place. So what they have is they have a sheikh shemel. Shemel is like a group of tribes that are under one umbrella. 
So uh, it just happened to be the day. It just when, happened. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky. Exactly. And the place was about two hours away, but there was a mudslide that day. And so the roads were closed and we had to go take a, a mountain route. So I passed through the villages. Very enriching experience. Mm. Uh, beautiful because they considered me one of them. And uh, I was marching with them uh, to uh, towards the new tribe leader. And we had gifts with us. So part of it was a baby camel in a pickup truck. Uh, a little bit of cash and a, and a sword engraved with the, the new tribe leader's name. Wow. Uh, wonderful experience. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because um, the south of the peninsula is still very much uh, preserved in its uh, experiences. So this time when we did a trip for the group of uh, 20 people, we uh, we decided to take them. Um, so I, I really wanted them to get exposed to these people because these people were very interesting in how they've preserved their culture. Mm. But their areas uh, are not suitable for you know a bus of twenty people to go to. Mm. Um, not infrastructure wise, nor nor the people would be that. Uh, yeah, it's a crowd. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we found a way to get them uh, to to a place closer to us and uh, and perform for us traditional dances uh, you know we ate they cooked for us as well a wonderful meal uh, and that we got all these people to experience it but uh, you know going back to the south uh, I was trying to just give a little bit of context of what yeah, we no, do so I, so I don't it's, jump into the old guy it's and, beautiful and people don't understand where that comes from yeah <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah so uh, one of my favorite experiences of course I like to uh, get information out of old people and um, last year when I went on my own there was a guy uh uh, he's about 87, 88 years old. Wow. Uh, he he works in preserving, you know, the stone village you were just talking about, the, yeah. the beautiful stone village. Uh, he was a large part of preserving that because most of it was in ruins and he rebuilt it really? with the help of some of the families that are from the oh. area. Uh, and, and, you know, he's... Uh, he was my guy last year. This year, <laughs> when we went with the group, I see an old guy, we were invited to a dinner. So I see an old guy sitting on his own. Mm. So I was like, listen, I have to speak to him. <laughs> yeah. I told myself, you have to speak to him. He's, he probably has a lot of information from the past. He must have been in his 80s or late 70s. I said, excellent. Let me uh, go and speak to him. So I said, hi, uncle. How's, how's it going? I, uh, you know, I really want to know more about, uh, about what you have to say mm. uh, about the past. He's like, what do you want to know, my son? I said, anything. Just tell me about the past. So he tells me, he's like, we didn't have much. We had goats and, and cows and that's it. That's how we lived. Uh, and farming. So I said, uh, no, um, tell me, tell me, how'd you get married? He's like, oh, his eyes lit up, you know, oh, and wow. <laughs> you could see the passion in them. Wow. And he starts talking uh, and he goes on for like the next 30 to 40 minutes. And as he's talking with so much passion, mm. everybody else was with us. The guys that started coming and circling us. I was like, yes, it's oh, happening. Awesome. <laughs> it's happening. The energy is attracting everyone. So he starts talking about the stories of the past. And here's where context is so important. People think that there's no interaction between genders in the region because it's so strict. And before you would assume it to be even more strict. But in fact, it wasn't the case. Um, And this new culture of taboo is totally post-oil. It's totally new. Yeah, it was completely normal. We had to live. So women would be a part of the marketplaces because their men would be out working, doing something else. The women would be selling the stuff that the men probably bought or made. Um, So it was a very complementary society. But anyway, going back to the story of the guy, uh, you know, the, 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 (laughs) so he starts talking about his story. He found, he saw the girl uh, getting water from the well. uh, And of course they wouldn't cover their faces at that time, at least in their region. So uh, he, he found her beautiful. So he went and proposed to, uh, to, to her family to ask for her hand. 
Um, and uh, and after that, he says that they were, you know, they'd, they'd go out with their sheep or with their cattle. And as they're herding, they she, she'd be on one side of the valley, he'd be on another. And he'd sing a, a poem. They have something called a tark. So they he'd sing a poem flirting with her. Uh, and she'd respond with a poem that rhymes flirting back. So it's, it was a beautiful connection between the genders, yet respectful. Uh, Do you know if they're like spontaneous poems that they're making up on the spot or they're like ancient kind of things passed down from their forefathers or it's a, a song that everyone kind of knows that they're singing back and forth? What I understood was it was a spontaneous. Spontaneous. Uh, yeah, on the spot. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, imagine. I mean, I mean, now if I walk up to a girl in the, in the restaurant somewhere that I find uh, cute and I say, hi. <laughs> I'm Muhammad. I, I think I'll get a lot of uh, a lot of attention from the society, and oh, yeah. I, I definitely get ridiculed and put down. I just think it's it's so beautiful that they, you know, the singing and calling response back and forth of spontaneous song is just. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Continue your story, please. No, so this is what I was trying to say. I mean, you know, beautiful moments like these arise in, in these trips uh, where, you know, you get to, you get to, I mean, for me, it was, you know, suddenly being in the place for the tribe leader ceremony, being part of that, that was amazing. And then when we took the group, uh, seeing this old man and getting a story out of him, uh, the ladies were also fortunate of the group because they were passing by a house and there was an old woman who was just outside and she started talking to one of the ladies. So they went in and they got to see how the house looked like. Of course, I couldn't go as a man, mm-hmm. but they, you know, they had, uh, they had, uh, they had a wonderful experience out of it. So getting, uh, getting these things and understanding them and, you know, understanding how the past was gives you context to how colorful and natural we lived. Um, mm-hmm. It's normal. I mean, think about it. There has to be interaction between the genders. It's normal. <laughs> it's a normal part of life but over time we've created this culture of taboo which has created uh where did that you you mentioned post oil that that all that kind of came in post oil and you've used words like colorful and taboo which kind of paints this that now we're in this kind of uncolorful kind of sterilized environment whereas before it was it was natural you had to you had to work together as society what in and let me bring some more context to this question as um, I think most likely there's a lot of people who, who haven't spent as much time or energy thinking about this, researching this, traveling to different places, understanding the different cultures within the Khalij, within the region that you have. And so uh, to frame this question, I, I don't think a lot of listeners probably even has put a lot of thought into this as it's just, well, this is just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So what what series of events do you see that has happened post-oil that has caused this environment that we live in today? Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think. look, saying it's a sterile environment now and that it's no longer colorful. I don't want to put words in yeah, your mouth yeah. on that. I think, I think that's not entirely true. There are, of course, pockets of amazingness everywhere. Uh, and I, I, I like to say that. But uh, in general, the culture has taken a shift. And I think it's normal with any developing nation or any place where suddenly wealth gets, uh, you know, not imposed, but uh, is, is, is found. Um, and we notice this even in, in more developed uh, nations where, you know, uh, the richer classes will mm-hmm. have a lot more uh, social status and social norms uh, because they have to be seen a certain way in their, in their circles. 
whereas you know uh, somebody who's living more so in a more simple manner would be wouldn't care as much mm-hmm. and i think that's that's what we went through um we suddenly got this status elevation and and then you had to satisfy that circle and worry about what people think and so in the process we we held on to superficial things so um you know one example uh, i can throw out there is um the bedouins would always be very proud of their women uh, and because of how amazing she is uh, as a woman and she's up to her you know standards in let's say respect or in mm. the way she speaks or the the work she does so uh, a bedouin guy would go by the brother of shamma let's say you know uh, uh instead of saying instead of saying right now we call each other abu filan mm-hmm. father of the eldest son right uh and we and it's taboo to mention the name of a woman it's like oh my god how how did you mention your mom's name uh you're supposed to say um muhammad mm-hmm. uh, but no my mom's run and i'm fine saying it <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it it's a natural part of life that's my mom's name mm-hmm. but this taboo has been created because we have to be now socially uh that a woman uh, we don't talk about the woman because she's she's sacred uh, secret of ours that nobody else knows uh, and even to the point that i can't mention her name these things you know you get contacts with time but but the bedouins used to say akhu shamma he would be proud about his sister he'd mention her name <laughs> why can't i say it i'm a city guy i'm supposed to be more open yeah so you're saying before it was they would actually be proud to say i'm the brother of and they actually reference the female in the family rather than yes. hiding the female in the family yes correct so help help my american mind how did oil i understand that it was you know now there's money so you're you know as we'd say in the west keeping up with the joneses and there's all these social statuses that you're trying to maintain and represent um the honor of the family all that that i understand what i don't understand is how did that oil cause the culture to move from celebrating that so and so is you know flan flan is your mom and flan flan is your sister to hiding that what transpired see i don't think it's totally um, thought about or it's a process that's been uh, I, i don't think i have all the answers i think that's what i'm trying to say but mm. but what happened was certain taboos got magnified um so uh, and in a way that no thought was given to it mm. uh, of course women in in the region were always looked at as uh, as as special and they'd always be taken care of and of course there was the veil and there was respect elements but it it, it went yeah, overboard I, i understand it if in the context of because we honor our women we're going to protect them mm-hmm. right mm mm-hmm. but you're saying that it's gone to a, an unhealthy extreme exactly exactly and without any thought i don't think there was a thought process it just happened because it became about status it's a, it, what will others think of me as a man that i'm not taking care of my woman i'm mentioning her name okay you know what i mean and that became more prevalent as as uh, as people suddenly went shifted from that nomadic lifestyle i don't want to say everyone was nomadic like we were we, you know we've been for more than 100 years or 150 years uh city dwellers or even more maybe 200 years by yeah, we i mean my, my my family my grandfathers my my ancestors so um I, not everyone was nomadic but still we lived a simple life and suddenly there's this extravagance mm-hmm. and to adopt i think that's that's where a lot of things got lost um and of course there was more importance put on things that at that time were more important like development infrastructure um you know spending on on facilities and and show 
uh, to show status, etc. But now uh, things have changed. Now you know you you can take a step back and say, okay, let me look at the social dynamics. Let me look at the the cultural mm. elements of things. By culture, that includes arts, history, you know, archaeology, everything, uh, language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot more is happening, but I, I always worry that it's happening at a superficial level. Uh, very few initiatives actually give importance to context and convey it that way. Mm. I want to go back mm-hmm. and ask another question. Mm-hmm. And again, this is pu- purely out of my ignorance. I, I don't, is what in the culture would say it's dishonorable to mention the woman's name? Is it something from a hadith or from? Nothing. Nothing. So there's no like like religious Islamic tie to that. It was just a fear within society and kind of afraid of what other people would think, but it's actually not tied to something purely Islamic. Yeah, nothing at all. I mean, we mentioned the prophet's wives, his daughter's names, and nobody cares. <laughs> so fascinating. That's so fascinating. Uh, you know, half of the hadith we have is from Aisha, which is... As a, a, a woman. Yeah, as a woman. The wife wow. of the prophet. <laughs> wow. So in, now you're talking about kind of that superficial, that people are in some superficial ways trying to preserve, but you don't feel like it's authentic. You don't feel like it's been put back into culture. If, you know, if there are people listening to this today who they're interested in going back to the roots or interested in understanding their, their family and their heritage, how can they begin to incorporate or understand where they came from in a non-superficial way? Um, it's a very interesting question because the, the natural way of doing this is by getting information from direct family members who have lived at the times when things were a little bit more simple. And a lot of that generation has disappeared. I mean, they've mm. all passed away or, you know, uh, are very old to to really be able to help at this stage. Um, although it's been very recent. I mean, we were fortunate enough in the UAE to, to have it until a later stage than most places. Mm. But, um, but right now it's so difficult to get that kind of information. So the best way really is through trying to read and understand and maybe going to other places where similar cultures still exist, which is what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, traveling to these areas, understanding what's happening, trying to read anything we can get from the past and try to understand how life was. Um, poetry is a great way in the Arab nation. Yeah. Uh, because uh, because they used to document through poetry. Um, what we know about certain historical events is all through poetry, mm. uh, especially things related to, uh, you know, maybe certain, uh, I don't want to call them empires, but kingdoms uh, that existed before Islam or even after Islam. Uh, poetry has been the main way to get mm. information on it. So yeah, I think that's the best way, just trying to get information as best as possible. And how do you think that that like looking at the heritage and understanding that heritage can help someone navigate their future? Um, it can help in many ways. So uh, I can, I love giving examples. I love, uh, I'd rather <laughs> examples than like, I'd rather a, a long story than a soundbite for sure. Uh, I was just mentioning, uh, yesterday we had a trip and I was mentioning, um, uh, we had a group of uh, media professionals and young young guys. Uh, and we were mentioning this habit called the Tomina we used to have. It's it's kind of like trick-or-treating, but our version. Uh, and basically, uh, you, if you if you type Tomina online, you might 
get some very nice uh, pictures of uh, young girls and guys dressed in their best outfits, uh, walking behind this instructor. So uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Tomina before. Have you? You have. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's a beautiful thing uh, where you know they they memorize let's say a chapter from the Quran and then they uh, to celebrate that they dress up in their finest outfits and they'd go out with their teacher or mtawa and he'd be reciting a, a poem uh, and a sheet and he'd be saying you know Alhamdulillah hadana and all the kids would go Amin. So uh, Tomina the name comes from Amin and they'd walk around the streets of the of the of the neighborhoods where. There would be more affluent families, and these families would would uh, throw uh, coins or chocolate to the kids from the balconies, so to uh, to encourage them to to keep learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a beautiful part of culture with such so much. It tells you so much about how the social fabric was at mm-hmm. the time, uh, but nobody knows about it, and we don't talk about. It. But you know, if you talk about uh, trick or treating in Halloween, <laughs> everyone yeah. knows about it. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but it's just that you know you have something beautiful which is part of your own culture mm-hmm. uh, that I feel needs to be celebrated or. Or spoken about, but then understanding that tells you about the social fabric of the time, the relationship between the older generation and the younger generation. Mm. Uh, it was so complementary; it wasn't disconnected. Um, they'd, they'd work together. Uh, they teach them, of course, the religious context, the 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 musical context. Everything is in this. Uh, even architecture. If you think about, if you if you're walking through the old areas of Fahidi, you'll notice that the the shutters of the of the balconies are p- positioned in a certain way that you can't look inside because there'd be women sitting out in the balconies mm-hmm. but then there's these little holes and you're like what are those holes for why do they exist you know so one of the one of the people i was sitting with and trying to understand the architecture there one of the theories is that those holes are there so that the the women could throw the coins and the chocolates for for or the candy for the kids who are passing by with the tomina and singing the tamina. Wow. So little things that influences every single element of our lives. And it tells you so much. But if you don't understand it, you look at the tamina. And it points to, I think for someone growing up, maybe that starting to have kids or they're married. And it points to the importance of interaction and cross-generational family. And that's not disconnected. Do you feel like in, in kind of the post oil world that there's begun a breakdown in the family unit or do you feel obviously generalization i know i most most people i talk to every friday they're with their family everyone's in the medjulis everyone's sitting so it's it's a, a broad generalization but i also hear things like um you know the closer you get to certain areas of town the more disauthentic it feels and so I'm just wondering, do you, do you feel like there's been a, a an erosion of family or of culture in the region? <laughs> it's a tough question. <laughs> you put me on the spot. No, um, honestly, like my, I can't, I can't speak for everyone because I ha- I don't know what the majority is. But what I'm exposed to, yes, uh, I do feel that there's uh, there's an erosion of of the true meaning of family and. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to come from a, a closely knit family. Uh, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, yes. Uh, because I think it's very important, especially growing up. It gives you a stability that mm. uh, that that I think you need at that age. But uh, what I've seen, what I've seen more and more, is that, and maybe if I were to summarize, and this is totally my opinion, uh, it's um, it's that the 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 fundamentals required for marriage or establishing a family. Mm 
have changed over time uh, because of this excessive need to satisfy the society and the culture of taboo. Uh, that selection of, of your life partner is done based on, I don't know, family, wealth, status, tribe, um, things that maybe don't have much mm. real meaning mm. uh, when it comes to the context of family. And so what happens is you have the wife, you know, you have the kids because that's what society wants you to do after you get married. But do you really have a bond with them? Do you really, I mean, I see this a lot. Um, and if I may speak openly, uh, one of the things I don't like is the when I go to the malls and I see, you know, the mom's on her phone, dad's on his phone, and the kids are with the maids walking in the back. I don't like it at all. I understand. You might need the maids. I, I I will accept it, but I, I still don't understand it. I will accept it. I think that's a better way. You might need the maids to help you out. But um, I think it's unac unacceptable because it's it's further, uh, you know, widening that gap between between the kids and the family, mm. the, the father and his wife. Uh, I think it's very important that, that you know that they be together and i think that's what's causing the erosion of mm. of of culture and family the 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 fundamentals of picking uh, your life partner mm. have changed over time whereas before it was very clear he's a good guy he doesn't ha he doesn't do anything wrong uh, you know we know that uh, he's a responsible guy he works hard uh, and he's come to ask for a daughter's hand and we ask our daughter hey daughter what do you think? There's this guy who's come. Would you like to get to know him? Would you like to marry him? And she says, yes, great. But now there are certain times in certain families, I don't say that happens a lot or uh, everywhere, but in certain families, they force the daughter to get married to somebody she doesn't even want. And same because with- Because of status. Because of status. And same with the sons who are who fear that if they disobey their parents, they may not, uh, they may lose the family wealth, mm. let's say. So a lot of it has become social- rather than, I mean, satisfying society, rather than really I'm doing this because I'm doing it for for the sake of establishing a family, for the sake of having children. Mm. Yeah, I read a, there's an article, I think it was in, I don't know, the news, maybe it was golf news, but a study done in Sharjah talking about the breakdown um, largely due to maids, that there are kids growing up that they don't know any Arabic and they're losing kind of that culture. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the maid is the issue, yeah. but it's a greater systemic problem within the family of disengagement, mm -hmm. right? That the across the board, there's not intentionality to engage, just like you pointed to that story where the, the, the community is engaging with the children by encouraging them in, in cultural things. Mm -hmm. Um and just that that fabric of the community um that saddens my heart in mm. in some ways and it's true in america too so mm. I, I don't think this is something that's just like it's not just especially here in this region i think for sure across the states mm. you but, see that and there's so many uh things that have become taboo over time which i think was were normal things like you know if you'll sit with so many guys from here or families but yeah it's my grandmother but he's also her his grandmother because she remarried like four times and has kids from every single man she married and it was something totally normal but now uh god forbid a woman goes through a divorce because then she's not worthy of marriage mm. and that's become the taboo as she's divorced how can you marry a divorced woman so 
<laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. It's part of life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, certain things have become taboo over time. And like I told you, it's all, again, become, that's what's creating the erosion that mm. you're talking about. It's not really, um, it's not uh, that the families are not doing enough because lifestyle or etc. Et it's because the fundamentals are, that are in place are all Interesting. geared towards satisfying society rather than actually forming a family. That's wow. uh, that's how I look at it. But of course, I'm painting a very dark picture. There's there's a, yeah. there's a lot of amazing people out there who don't think this way. But it's interesting that you're pointing to it's this. You've used the term uh, worship of society rather than actually taking care of your family. Mm-hmm. And and I, I agree. Like it, it could seem to be a dark picture. But I think if we don't recognize issues in our life, if we're not self aware and saying this is actually happening then we can't pivot and make better decisions for our future, for the future of our children. So Mm -hmm. I think wrapping up, the question that I would have is how can families across the region do it better? How can we not fall into these traps and how can we kind of navigate our futures and our children's futures over the next 5, 10, 20 years so that this doesn't happen, so that we're not just being blown by the whims of society, so that we're not disengaged from our children, so that we're not detached from our heritage. How can we do it better? And I think that's even the third kind of point of your of t- Tamashi is you want to make a positive impact. And I'm, I'm guessing from everything that we've talked about, that largely has to do with a positive impact cross-culturally within society, within the family unit, within uh, youth feeling connected with their heritage, with a, a rich, rich Arab heritage that goes back thousands of years. How, how does one go forward? It's like, okay, this is the landscape. So what? How can we make a difference? How can we change this narrative? I don't think I have the answer to that, but, ah. <laughs> but, but is it, um, then what's, what's the question that you think people should ask on a daily basis to combat that? I think, I think the key is being aware, uh, being aware of understanding the essence of the region. If culture is what's binding them, if they feel it's culture, that's, that's, uh, that's stopping them. Uh, I feel understanding the truth about the culture, the context behind it is very important. And that's the best we can do as, as, as an entity, as, a, as all my personal efforts. The best I can do is understand what was mm. so I can have context to why we do certain things the way we do. And then make a decision if I want to do it or not. Uh, and that's the best we try to do. Um, you know, part of the, the positive impact that we do is um, we, we try our best to educate people or make them aware about certain elements, beautiful elements of the region, similar to this podcast, similar to what I've been doing with, uh, you know, with Tamashi's work through my own social media, as well as Tamashi's, uh, showing beautiful elements of the region in, in, a, in a positive light, and then let people decide what mm-hmm. they want to do. Um, one of the other things we've done is we've started working with uh, emerging artists from the region. So um, this is part of our Coloring Lives, we call it Coloring Lives, which is the leaving a positive impact in society. Uh, why do we work with emerging artists? Um, the main reason for us was um, we'd always get, uh, at, in 2014, this was a huge thing. Really, Emirati women in a mall painting? They paint? Really, they paint? I swear we used to get these answers, these questions. 
do they really paint? Are these real Emiratis? Or like you got them from somewhere? And that's and like, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it, but I, I do. I think everything that you shared, it flies in the face of this stereotype of I drive around in, you know, Mercedes G-Wagon and my patrol and I'm just at the lavish mall and that's my life. Mm-hmm. Right? That's like the that what's been painted that's what you see that's what most people see because that's the people who are out there but you know there's this majority that are actually working hard they actually have goals they actually have creativity and the reason i brought up this point of the artist is because we want the artist to also see that there's companies out there who are willing to trust them who are Mm. willing to work with them who are willing to give them the platforms that they require to excel because we believe that our culture is beautiful and that Absolutely. we're proud of it. And we've seen it. We've seen it. Like, um, I'm get, again, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm saying <laughs> Second time today. But but uh, but no, uh, really, we feel, we feel it. The artist gets moved. And that's our mm. role, to show them. You know, um, when we had uh, our recent trip and we sponsored a few of the photographers to come with us, Emalati photographers, it was beautiful because we could see... We, we could see them feel our passion and we could see what, what we've been trying to convey actually settling in and, mm. and how they're reacting to that environment. So I think that's the best we can do as people. We can show them what it is that we come from uh, and, and, what, and give context to it. And then the rest is up to the individual. Do they want to really take it further, think about it or just follow the norm? Uh, and and just be another you know piece of the puzzle. <laughs> that's that's up to the person. I think mm. that's the best way I can answer this question. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for for joining us today. Um, maybe for one last final thought mm-hmm. for anyone listening to them, kind of even off this last thing of you can either follow the norms or you can find a different way. What what would your advice in kind of like your final exhortation be? To someone who listens to this, they go and they check out your Instagram feed. They see all these amazing places and peoples and culture. And they're kind of in that valley of decision, if it were, of, you know, what are you going to do? What would be your kind of charge and exhortation to them? um, And why should they choose not to just follow the crowd? And how, what's kind of like the first step that they can take? I'm not a I'm not a fan of rebelling for no reason. Um, so I wouldn't say just go against the crowd and you know destroy everything they believe in. <laughs> I think it's important. We're social creatures. We have to be part of society. We have to function within society. So there has to be that mutual respect element, which and is the context and the con- recontextualization of the past, right? Exactly. Uh, and 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 working with that, of course, we have to respect other people's beliefs, but at the same time. Uh, we have to understand why we're doing something, especially if it brings, um, it brings, um, I want to say darar, I'm looking at, I'm thinking harm. If it brings harm to, <laughs> what happens when you have too many languages yeah. going on. <laughs> it brings harm uh, to someone else or to you as an individual mm-hmm. or to your family. Um, then you need to stop and think, is this really something I need to mm. I need to follow. If it's bringing harm, if it's bringing negativity, if it's bringing uh, rigidity to something that really doesn't require rigidity, mm. uh, why don't we look, why don't we study it and see maybe it's actually nothing got to do with our culture. Maybe it's something new. Um, that's what I would say as a, as a, as a final point. It doesn't make sense to rebel for no reason. Absolutely. <laughs> Although there's a lot of people who do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even think it, I don't even think it would be rebellion in a way. I think it would be um, 
you know, in my mind, the word rebellion has, you know, really negative connotation and it's kind of saying, uh, it's kind of going against everything that's good. But I would almost, what, I mean, your, your message and what, you, what you're bringing to the table has nothing, no negative, negative context to it. It's not even, it's not going against something that's good and healthy. You're, you're actually saying like, no, this is what we come from. This is like our roots and it's kind of come back to our roots instead of just be blown mm -hmm. by the wind, which is a disciplined life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what sort of steps could they take today? Just be aware. I always be aware. Always, how, be aware. how do you be aware? <laughs> I can market Tamashi here. <laughs> market it, please. This I'm is, kidding. I'm plug kidding. it. No, honestly. Okay. But yeah, I mean, the best way is to really travel and understand. Uh, and for me, for me at least, the mm -hmm. best way has been through uh, searching for context within old texts or old, um, let's say, um, poetry mm. or even if it has to do with going to old villages, seeing how, I mean, a basic thing uh, for me, like maybe most people won't think about it, is I'd go to Fahedi area, also known as Bestikia. Uh, and, you know, we'd see, uh, sorry, we'd see uh, the way the wind towers are structured. Yeah. Each one is at a certain angle and the houses don't block one or the other. So they've been made in a certain way so that each one has thought about his neighbor. And and there was actual planning that went into it. So if they could do it then, that means they really thought about each other's benefit. Why mm. don't we think about each other's benefit? That's this is, powerful. This is one basic thing. You know that what I mean? Powerful. Give thought to even the most little thing in culture, but because everything had a reason. They wouldn't just do things randomly because it looked nicer. It, they had a, a, a principle behind it. The Al-Qat art that we're preserving now, um, it's part of, uh, it was part of the guest homes. They wanted to make the guest rooms colorful because it was a place you'd You'd greet people. You wanted to instill emotions of happiness. So there was color there. Mm. There was, uh, and it was also a way to show off that, oh, you know, the woman of the house is an artist, you know, and she does a good job. Wow. <laughs> you know, so wow. these, these things, these things, I, give it thought. Why They weren't random, you know? And wow. Why should we be random today? Wow. Muhammad, you have quite the gift to extrapolate um, simple things in culture into real life practical kind of pr proverbial if you will um wisdom that you can apply just even the, the house thing i was just i was like that is so deep of like no they thought about their neighbor okay how how does that apply to your life today how can you think and plan your life so that you're actually blessing other people same with the the guest room um that i think is an amazing gift you're you. a gifted communicator, gifted storyteller, and I love how you're using um, something so common as a sandal to tell a, a story. And I think it's a beautiful story. That, you know, Tamashi, it's you walking alongside, you're walking with, it's your your feet, and I think shoes and sandals just play a have a really intricate part in every culture and every every sphere. Um, and I love that you're telling stories through sandals to enable us to walk back into time and understand culture from an age before, which then tells us how we should walk today and how to walk into the future. So I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful picture and your products look amazing. I don't own any yet, 
But inshallah, we must have. I would be honored. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I really appreciate it, and thank you for your kind words. Yeah. Uh, I'm very happy I could convey, uh, you know, that that point, and I'm uh, always here if you need anything. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And where can people find you online? With your uh, handles and. We're www.tamashi.com, T-A-M-A-S-H-E-E. And uh, our Instagram is Tamashi as well. And uh, that's the best two ways to to be uh, in touch with us and to see the fun stuff we do. Great. And your personal Instagram? My personal Instagram is M-A-Kazim. That's M-A-K-A-Z-I-M. Great. And we'll also put your partners linked up in the show notes. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you got an incredible amount of wisdom from... Muhammad, thank you. Hayakullah. <laughs> thank you. Own your story and you will own the future. <laughs>